0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and it's officially 2024. And not just the year, but the election season of 2024, with major and consequential, not just issues, but really the future of the country on the ballot. We are kicking off the year with the first of what will be several episodes we'll be having over the next few months looking at the 2024 election. Today's podcast will air on Thursday... And then just a few days later on Monday will be very significant for two different, but actually related reasons. First, Monday the 15th is Martin Luther King's birthday. It's his actual birthday. Second, Monday marks the beginning of the 2024 Republican nomination contest as Iowa holds its caucuses in the Republican uh, presidential battle. I try to frame up this moment in the preface to my book, How We Win the Civil War, which will be out in March, the paperback version, where I argue in this preface that this moment is akin to 1876, which is the following the 10 years of reconstruction within this country in really a national referendum around should we continue to go forward trans- towards trying to create a multiracial democracy or will we go backwards? And at that time in terms of handing the country back to the Confederates, and today it's articulated as we're going to make America white again. And boil it down to its essence, that is the core of what this election is about. And that battle begins on Monday. Republicans are trying to navigate and figure out what to do with all the problematic aspects of having Donald Trump as a candidate, including multiple criminal trials, prospect of actual jail time multiple courts in addition to all of that saying that he's ineligible to appear on the ballot because of his role in the insurrection of uh uh january 6th and the constitution 14th amendment says people who incited insurrection cannot hold office quite correctly and so there's all these uncertainties and all these questions and so people are trying to figure out but despite all of that trump has held an iron grip on the republican party and its voters and so we will see in the next few months whether or not he can be replaced as the, as the potential Republican nominee, and over these next few months we'll have a number of episodes tracking what's happening and what the implications are and what, where do we all go from here. And so today, today's episode will kick off that process and we will be joined by one of the sharpest reporters covering national politics today. So we're going to get started by setting the stage and give you an overview of what to expect over the next few months So I'm looking forward to this episode and to talking with our guest. For the conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. I think we're officially past the Larry David cutoff for when you can wish somebody Happy New Year, but nonetheless, Happy New Year. How are you? And do you want to get us going?
1: I don't prescribe to that cutoff. So I think all January is fair game, and I'm Chinese, and like many cultures, we have our new year that can run from January through February. And so, well, Larry David Lunar- says three
0: days, but um, that's, that's the spectrum we have.
1: <laughs> Lunar New Year, I think, is in February this year. So, I am, it's all fair game. So, I'm going to keep saying Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Really looking forward to this year and another year podcasting with you and the team. And I am really happy and excited to introduce today's guest. Uh, today we're going to be talking to Ested again, Ested Herndon. And we are really, really like, just, like you said, feel so honored to get a little bit of his time. He's super busy and we always love talking to him. So Steve, before he joined us, I wanted to ask you to help us frame up this year. Like, what, what are you thinking right now and how can you help us frame it up to start thinking about this year as we officially, officially kick off 2024? heading into this major presidential election year.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's helpful to, to take an overview to what's going to transpire and to also be able to have the right lens and perspective on it in that the media is so caught up in it and perpetuates it that you don't ever get a sense of what is important, what's not as important, and everything seems to be so dramatic. So I think it's good to just take a bigger picture look at the overall Um, what's to transpire and it's kind of crazy actually when you think about it that you know it's the most powerful nation on the planet certainly, likely that it's kind of ridiculous how we go about actually choosing a president and that there's this very compressed time period for all of the like, you know, certainly months if not years of planning and preparing and getting ready, it's like a it's really, sometimes a two week maybe a two month sprint in which what really is happening is a battle over narrative and it's, it's almost like a movie or a book, and different scenes and different chapters, and somebody ahead or somebody coming behind, et cetera. Like, you know, somewhat most dramatically probably was when uh, in '92, when, you know, Bill Clinton had, you know, back when we had, you know, scandals that mattered, these different scandals, and that was he out of the race, and then he actually did better in New Hampshire than he expected, and he declared himself the comeback kid. And so it's like and that kind of changed the narrative and you kind of got momentum again. And so what we what we're in for is the different scenes or chapters in this mm-hmm. narrative and in this you know movie or book about the, the how we're going to choose the, the nominees, of who's going to be the President of the United States. So let me just hit the high points of those and what we can expect. And I think that also frames up. Um, how to interpret what's what's going on? So as we said, Monday is the Iowa caucus, and so that uh, is going to be, the, be fish, the first official voting of what transpires. Everybody, Trump's been dominating in the polls there, and everybody kind of assumes um, that he's going to be going to win. But then there's going to be a question about is someone going to emerge as second place? Will they have momentum? And so that's one of the whole big issues, which is a completely subjective determination. Is that you know? Does the media or do some people determine? oh, this was quote better than expected. Without just saying who was expecting, and that then they will either have momentum or not. And so then, we're, so then from coming out of Monday out of the Iowa caucuses, be a tremendous amount of media attention as was saying, you know. Sanglestead and the national reporters are descending on Iowa as we speak. Then that will shape up a big narrative around the following Tuesday in uh, New Hampshire on the 23rd. And so there's gonna be a big battle, people come out of New Hampshire, it's often like this media coverage of they're on their way to New Hampshire, their plane's leaving, et cetera. So who comes out of New Hampshire with momentum? And that'll be a big battle in terms of what's gonna happen there. That's gonna be on the 23rd, the following week. And so what's interesting about that is New Hampshire is less rabid in terms of its uh, Republican voters. And so there's, there's less receptivity in some ways t- to the Trump, you know, red meat, raw, um, rhetoric and politics, and so that's going to be this question around, can somebody emerge there? This this question we'll talk a little bit more later about with Nikki Haley, governor of South Carolina, is actually doing better in the polls there, and so can she come closer? Can she defeat Trump on in, um, in New Hampshire? And this is why it becomes this thing about a, it's a movie or a story, because it's just like a teeny tiny amount of delegates actually at stake. I, mean, I don't know the exact number for Republicans, but it's something like a thousand delegates you need to win. There's like 50 or 75 or something, some small number of delegates. So it's actually not that consequential, but the media narrative is going to be enormous. And it's like, oh, Trump lost, and he's wounded, and then he's going to be able to come back, and can people go after him? So that's what all the story is going to be. And so following the New Hampshire primary on the 23rd, then there's going to be Nevada on uh, February 6th, and then South Carolina February 24th. And so everyone's there was a whole Good New York Times podcast, which a stuff had his podcast, which we'll talk about. There's also the Daily that was talking about the race and how a lot of ways Trump has already sewn up Nevada behind the scenes in terms of forcing everybody out of the race, using his powers um, with his insiders. And so they again the narrative. Is Trump weak coming out of New Hampshire? And then it's like can he come off the ropes and fight back in, in Nevada, which he likely is going to win? And what's the narrative gonna be then? And then you have three weeks, which is going to be a you know a lifetime in this presidential process leading up to South Carolina. And, and so that's going to be a major, because that's Nikki Haley's home state, but it's also this place where the Civil War began. Trump is actually doing quite well there, so then that'll be another piece. So these things are all, they t- all take on outsized significance in terms of the interpretation of what is happening around, is somebody up, is somebody down, are they wounded, are they strong, et cetera, et cetera, and that's what we're in for. Over the next few, over the next couple of months, and then Super Tuesday is March fifth, and that's when like, you actually have a ton of delegates actually being chosen. And so it's more likely than not that if the even if the contest has been dragging on, that it may well be decided on March fifth in a, in a fairly formal way. So that's kind of what where we're at and what we're looking at um, over the next couple of months.
1: Nice, and March fifth, just in time for your second edition of your book's launch, which will be March twelfth. Yep. See what, see what I did there?
0: Yes, I do see <laughs> what you yes. did there. The, yeah. <laughs> the Civil War framing will be quite relevant. How we timely. win the
1: Civil War. <laughs> yeah. Second edition will be coming out. And thanks. No, that was really helpful. Um, even for me, I just feel like there are so many articles out there, so many hot takes, lots of moving pieces. And uh, it's easy to forget sort of what's coming up and what are the sequence of events and that this is this is all, you know, it's showtime. It's all about to happen. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're gonna be right there, keeping everybody in the loop on our thoughts and especially your thoughts and your takes on uh, you know, as as things happen unfold, we're gonna have more and more to say about it. So speaking of civil war, I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about Nikki Haley and her recent controversy. So again, she's emerged as the primary alternative to Trump as a conservative woman of color. And she's recently come under fire for her response to a question about the Civil War about you know there was an audience member who asked her um, why did she think what in her opinion why did the Civil War happen? And this was at a rally and again the person was asking about like what is her take on the causes behind the Civil War And she basically did everything except name slavery. So she was kind of you know hemming high and sort of talking about, I don't know state rights and you know independence and then she just basically refused to name sal- slavery as the root cause and use the word. So I was wondering what are you thinking in terms of Haley's candidacy overall in spe- and especially in light of her comments and I remember that day because I was really excited because the number one trending phrase on Twitter was <laughs> Civil War and I thought <laughs> oh it's a great chance for us to plug your book but it was pretty interesting. And uh, it's definitely now, you know, again, just regularly front and center in the news, this, this phrase, this idea of the Civil War, and then this particular moment where Nikki Haley just refused to use the word slavery to describe um, a cause behind the Civil War.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it is fascinating how we originally started out, right? Saying, well, let's use the Civil War as a framework for understanding this country as a metaphor, but not. now how it's like mm-hmm. still front and center and really yeah. quite relevant. I mean. And so I remember
1: people being like, "Oh, that's sort of hyperbolic, huh, right, Steve? Right, right. You know, you don't want to. You're just being you know, exaggerating." Yeah, and
0: then here we are. And so, just in terms of the overview, I was giving, I think, a couple points about how that came about and was relevant. So it was, it was at a uh, Haley was at a town hall meeting in New Hampshire, and she was asked. So actually, people did we didn't to, need to appreciate Haley was the governor of South Carolina. South Carolina is the state where the Civil War began. And so this is a critical piece. South Carolina's earlier governor, Strom Thurmond, the 1940s ran for president on a platform, the Dixiecrat platform, which is explicitly called for segregation. And he was senator, then he became senator, and he was a senator for like 50 years or something. And so South Carolina had the Confederate flag flying over its state capital for decades. And so this was this ongoing initial. So when Haley was governor, the Confederate flag was still flying over its capital. And so that's some of the context to this piece um, around the relevance of Civil War and how does she kind of look at this issue. And so then there was the domestic terrorism attack in 2015 at Mother Emanuel Church where a white Confederate flag loving guy went into a black church and shot and killed nine people saying that you you know you rape our women and you're taking over our country and so that the outcry from that is really what forced south carolina to finally with great reluctance um, and resistance to take down the confederate flag over its capital and that's all happened on haley's watch so then you look at the calendar and the primary calendar saying the south the north new hampshire voters are less rabid and so what my interpretation is that you had a voter in new hampshire who was trying to figure out who haley is where is she at on this whole make America white again, capitulate to the cons- to the Confederates uh, spectrum? And so he asked her this question, what do you think was the cause of the Civil War? And then people should actually watch the clip. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes. And it's fascinating is that she turns her back to him and walks mm-hmm. away as she tries to gather herself and think about what the answer should be. And then she gets this long rambling, hemming and hawing change versus tradition, blah, bitty, blah blah, blah, blah. And so that's what was really going on. And what it showed was her fear of the Trump forces and the right-wing pieces. She didn't want to say slavery because she didn't want to alienate them because she saw how strong and how powerful that constituency is in terms of the Republican Party. And yet she wanted to appeal in New Hampshire to make it seem like she wasn't as crazy and rabid. So she was trying to walk this tightrope and that was wh- why that moment was so significant. But I think it's significant more lar- in a larger sense because it frames up what are the what is the underlying forces and tensions in this battle um, in the Republican primary.
1: Yeah, I like to think of it as like she was glitching. It's like I kind of right. almost saw in real time, like you know, she's this woman of color. She's trying to, let, you know, she's trying to like work all these different groups, like all these different audiences. But her brain was trying to figure out. How right. can she how can she do that? And then at the yep. end she got you know, caught anyway. Yeah. So Steve, I also just I wanted to just follow up and also ask you so curious, what do you think about Haley's prospects overall and her candidacy?
0: Yeah, well it's fascinating and I'm I've been working on a piece I'm gonna see if we can run in The Guardian on this, is that yeah, you know, it's like that she's walking the tightest of uh tight ropes. Is that part of her appeal is that she gives a different Image quite literally to a party that's fueled by racism and misogyny and white racial mm-hmm. resentment, and so to have a woman of color as the as the you know the face of that party absolves people in a lot of ways that they're very excited about, and then you would also have it's more really some of the donors who don't like Trump's the rawness of his. Um, of his racism and his rhetoric and his attacks is that she's more, she's more, you know, refined and polished, you know, edges and whatnot, and so she has a lot of uh, big money support. People who feel that she's that they're more drawn to her, and so I think that's part of how she's been able to emerge um, as this alternative. But the challenge is what's going to be fascinating to watch is that it is a party that is fundamentally fueled by white racial resentment. And misogyny as well, as we saw in twenty sixteen. And so there's a feral aspect to the energy and support that backs Trump in terms of you're not gonna take away our country and we're gonna reestablish this as a, you know, straight white man country. And there's just this I mean, I keep coming back to the word feral about it. She does not elicit that. And then as a woman of color, I think that on the one hand, people feel like, well, yeah, they can point to her and say, oh, yeah, see, that means we're not racist. But on the other hand, I don't think she elicits the depth of the passion that the core Trump supporters have. But this is what is going to be a lot of the battle that we're going to come to see. And so it's part of what's propping her up are the the major donors and the you know, really, frankly, the billionaires who are pumping all this money in to lift her up. But does she have the depth of passion and enthusiasm underneath her that Trump does? And that's really what we're going to see uh, over the course of the next month. And I'm highly skeptical that these people who are chanting lock her up about Hillary and wearing you know MAGA Civil War sweatshirts and storming the Capitol are going to be equally enthused about this uh, more restrained woman of color as their, as their potential standard bearer.
1: So with that today, our guest today is New York Times reporter Ested Herndon. Ested had joined us back in 2021. We had a great conversation with him then. We'll we'll put that link of that episode, too, in our notes so you can check that one out. And as a reminder, he's a national political reporter at The New York Times. He's also host of this terrific podcast through The New York Times. It's called The Run-Up. Definitely check that out. In 2019, Ested was the Times campaign reporter for Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. He also covered the presidential campaigns of Biden and Trump, and has helped shape the Times' coverage on race and identity. And we've been fans of his work for a number of years, and he's just a really, we feel like a stellar reporter, but an important voice out there that uh, really adds a lot to overall coverage of sort of the landscape of politics in this country. Welcome back, Ested. Hi. Oh,
2: oh, nice. Thank you
0: so much. So uh, we're just going to jump right in, Ested. So, yeah, what, we were talking a little bit about what the uh, landscape looks like, with the Iowa caucus coming up the 15th, followed by New Hampshire and the South, uh, South Carolina at the end of February. And you've been out there for, you know, probably like a year now, running around talking to those Republican voters, going to their events, asking them how they look at things. So with the race ready to uh, actually formally begin with the voting starting, How do you see these next couple of months playing out largely in terms of is Trump as strong as he looks in the polls? Is there an actual uh, alternative to him? And then how do the voters, how are they going to respond in terms of these actual upcoming elections? How do you see it playing out?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that you're really hitting on the central question. I mean, the overwhelming evidence, both in polling and also in our own reporting, is that, you know, not only is Donald Trump ahead, there's not, there's, there's not really an alternative in touching distance. And so I think Iowa will give us our first kind of hard evidence to maybe back that up or kind of question that. But I really think that that's the only kind of thing we're looking for going into here. But I think it's even murkier than that if you look for the other alternatives let's say Donald Trump, you know, is weaker than expected. It's not really clear to me that Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis are particularly well suited to even overtake him at this point either. So I think there's like two kind of like dual questions here. One is just like the amount of loyalty to Donald Trump from the Republican base. Like, Mm. is that as strong as polling has shown? And then I think there's a kind of supplementary question, which is if that is no, and we might have uh, uh, maybe more of an opportunity other candidates to make a play than maybe we expected are these candidates even capable of doing that and i think that we don't know that yet you
0: have a prediction for monday how it's going to play out
2: (laughs) um i mean i guess i don't really i mean i I think donald trump is going to be the republican nominee is my Mm. it's not that spicy of a prediction (laughs) but i think that that is so whether it whether I was closer than expected or New Hampshire's closer than expected, I guess to me is like not even that, it's like a f- kind of interesting horse race cable news question. But like if the broader right. question is if Donald Trump is gonna be the Republican nominee, I think that that's been, for me, clear or the overwhelming evidence for the last year. And he's actually gotten mm-hmm. stronger and not weaker in that respect. That's
1: right. I said, you know, you've been, Covering the campaign, uh, the cycle, and you've um, through your podcast again, which we love, and we, uh, we've been listening to. You're in a constant conversation with people around the country, and so in your conversations with others, and you know, you talk to people across the spectrum from Republicans, uh, conservatives, to independents and Democrats and liberals. What are you hearing, especially for those who do find Trump still appealing? Can you help us understand like why why is his, why is he still so strong? Like why is, what is the appeal still? And you know, for those of us, you know, for somebody, let's say like me, who is progressive following the news and just everything that adds up, that would make you think that there's so many reasons to find him re- repelling and not a suitable candidate and not a suitable to be, you know, commander in chief of our country again. I guess I'm just gonna help me make help me make it make sense, please. And what is it that you're hearing in helping us understand?
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess like I guess like if you are a Republican base voter, right? Donald Trump is not just the last nominee or the last president. He has remade the party in mm-hmm. an image that you like, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing to understand is that for the Republican base, the ways that, that Donald Trump has transformed the party is not a bad thing. It is a thing that they like. So Mm. like after 2012, where a lot of these same voters were really upset with Mitt Romney, with the Republican establishment that they thought was really blowing it, that they thought was way too deferential to kind of big business, was not strong enough, quote unquote, on illegal immigration, was not pushing back against the kind of like growing uh, racial majority in this country. All whatever you want to say. Like they were dissatisfied with the Republican Party pre 2016. So what Donald Trump has done was, was more than just win the presidency. It was reshape the focus of the Republican Party to things that the base actually cares about and likes. So if that is your prism that you are looking in, then, and there's another important thing too, is like if you are a Republican base voter, you also think that his presidency was full of instances of Democrats or establishment blocking him from doing what he wants, right? And so under that view, He has an unfinished job for a lot of these people. And even more so than that, he has an unfinished job that the, quote unquote, deep state or Democratic establishment or prosecutors or whoever you want to call now are trying to block him from finishing. And so that's really kind of the the put your head in a lot of the Republican base side. It's like not only are the other candidates just not Donald Trump, he's got a six year head start on doing things that they trust and like. And so it's not just the rhetoric, it's actually that promise of retribution that they identify with. They want a president that hits back on political enemies. They want a president that demeans, you know, certain people in this country. You know, that's actually what they are seeking. And so I think there can be kind of a a way that people talk over Republican voters and act as if they are voting for Donald Trump in spite of those things, when it's, for me, in our reporting, the exact things they like the most about him. And so the people who are having to swallow things they don't like are kind of the other 50% of Republicans, right? For 50% of Republicans, Donald Trump is great, you know? But there's another group who are kind of sick of the antics, who do think that he is, has a lot of baggage, all of those things. But the important thing to remember about that slice is if you haven't left the Republican Party yet, right? Mm-hmm. If you haven't voted for mm-hmm. Joe Biden already, if you haven't actually found him unacceptable by now, you probably are willing to accept even this next piece too. So, like, yeah, they might be interested in Haley or DeSantis. They might have wished they had other options. But when we talk to them about will you vote for him if he's the nominee, the answers are a resounding yes. Because if you are still a Republican at this point, you're fine with Donald Trump, you know? And so I'm like, it's, Im- it's important to remember that a lot of people have fled the Republican Party, right? A lot of people have voted for Democrats who have never voted for Democrats before. That's the story of the midterms. That's even a piece of the story of the 2020 election. If you are still there after the 6th, after charlottesville after election deniers and the like you probably agree with impeachment (laughs) after impeachment (laughs) yeah after impeachment whatever (laughs) like the list goes on yeah right you probably agree with him so like that's what i try to tell people is like there's a faction of a republican party that does find donald trump frankly like annoying but will Mm -hmm. back him anyway Mm -hmm. and then there's a big portion of the republican party who, you know, in our episode that's going to come out um, tomorrow, we have somebody in there saying we're asking them, why don't they like Ron DeSantis? And mm. they say, well, why would I want the cover band when I have the band here? You know, <laughs> and Ooh. I think it's actually a really important mm. point is like right. if you think Donald Trump is good, why would you want a worse cleaned up version? You want the, the real stuff. Right. Well, let, let's
0: let's get into that point or the essence of the appeal and so this is the part of the point I think a lot of people obviously you know as a, as a black man covering politics in America people often don't want to talk about race they don't want to acknowledge they don't want to be explicit about it but what I keep trying to point out is that white racial fear has driven U.S. politics and history from the 1700s anti-slave laws where they had to you know, restrain the rapine nature of uh, black people to the freak out, not to freak out, it's the proper word, uh, to the reaction to Lincoln's election that led to the succession of this country, to uh, Strom Thurmond running on a segregation platform, to George Wallace running in uh, the 60s on his segregation forever platform, and then Trump rocketing up in the polls after attacking Mexicans. People forget he was at 4% in the polls in, uh, nationally in the Republican Party in May of 2015. Then he declared Mexicans rapists and murderers, and he was going to be the defender of white people. And that's when he shot to the top of the polls. You've been out there talking to these folks, trying to discern what it is is the nature of their, their appeal, there are multiple components to it, but I am wondering what is your assessment in terms of how much of the what draws them to him is this fear of the country's changing composition as exemplified by immigrants and people of color, and how much do you think that's central to what it is that draws people to Trump?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really core to the story. I mean, the part of the reason we started the run up with a look at the twenty twelve Republican autopsy is because we wanted to root our coverage in that fact. Right, the key lesson of how the Republican Party took the on of Obama years was that the establishment was kind of saying that the kind of growing demographic majority of people of color is gonna require them to change their language. And what they didn't see was that the base was kind of taking that same piece of information and saying, that's a reason for us to kind of retrench in our like, in that kind of fear-based politics, right? It wasn't a reason to shift to become more accepting of others. It was a reason to shift and actually, you know, double down on some of the principles that I think uh, you're describing, Steve. And so. Like, I think that the core essence of, like, white fear of a changing demographic is really important to understand the Trump phenomenon. But I think it's a little more than that, too. You also have a, I think that, like, kind of understanding gender politics and, like, the, the kind of ways that he can pull in black men and Hispanic men are also tied to a a kind of social language that Trump embodies. I think that there is also a backlash to core non-college, the way the Democrats have dropped off with uh, uh, working class people of color across a lot of ways has helped the Republican Mm -hmm. Party not have to even become a a kind of, because we talk about, you know, there's always the thought that as the country changed, that means the Republicans were gonna be unable to build a majority coalition. But I didn't think we really underrated the ways those changes would challenge the Democratic Party in keeping its coalition together. And so it's created openings for Republicans where it's not as if Donald Trump has to get more votes than Mitt Romney when we think of 2016 to 2012. It's actually that the Democratic drop off is enough that Republicans can do well either way. And so I just think we really underrated the ways in which the changing makeup of the country was going to affect a lot of areas of politics and I really think it was a kind of like monolithic understanding of people of color so that there was an assumption that black, brown, Asian meant Democrat. And I think we're increasingly seeing that's not necessarily true. And so even I think about now or the ways that, you know, we asked the Biden campaign about the ways that young people are really upset about the war in Gaza and are dropping off from Biden in big numbers in polling. And they'll tell us Mm -hmm. like, you know, we don't really see foreign policy rise to the top of people's concerns in general elections usually. And that's right, right? That's historically true. That's Mm -hmm. not usually where it is. But I think, you know, I think back to the changing demographics, as we have a growing immigrant population in the country, there's a different view about how the ways things are interconnected for a lot of people. And so I think that like, again, there was just such a singular story told about ways demographic changes were going to affect politics. that I think it caused the complacency on the Democratic side. And then the kind of clear eyed backlash that happened on the Republican side has created mm. this real toxic mix, I would say. And so, yeah. you know, I think it's created different challenges for both parties. But I think it is it, it is a shared challenge uh, because I do think it's a kind of a elected class at the top of them that really mm-hmm. underrated <laughs> the way grassroots politics would shift because of those. Yeah.
1: instead, yeah. I, I was so it warmed my heart for you to talk about these sort of Republican post sort of post mortal autopsy reports, because I know that there you know was one that came out even years ago that Steve wrote about. And through Democracy in Color, we've referenced about how the Republican Party had spent the time and put in putting the energy and resources to analyze, like why they were winning elections, including major Presidential elections, and one of the conclusions, and they they wrote you know in depth about it in this one report, is how they needed to lean more into um, recognizing that the demographics of the country were changing, and lean more into raising lifting up candidates of color, and yeah, yeah. leaning more reform, into voters well, voters of color, it, yeah. right? right. Well, and um, one that, of the things that I
0: then along because, came Trump, right? Who then along said, came Trump, right? right. right. So.
1: But but what we're seeing, what I'm what I'm getting to is this, um, what I'm seeing that's interesting, and I feel like, as the country demographically, is changing, increasingly browning. Uh, as Steve has written a lot about this new, you know, the the just. Um, d- diversity and increasing diversity of our country population-wise. What we're seeing right now, it, which is really interesting, is that the Republicans have two presidential candidates of color, both of them Asian, by the way, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, both of Indian American ancestry. They are in the mix. Uh, I wanted to also reference in one of your recent podcast episodes, great episodes where you actually attended a Jason Aldean concert at the Iowa State Fair. You had um, one interviewee mentioned that Nikki Haley although he couldn't really remember her name, that he felt like that was a secondary candidate for him that he could get behind. So in light of what you and Steve were just talking about, how for sure, on one hand, there is this sort of feral white male, you know, dominant energy of the Republicans standing up and wanting to fight up against the wave of increasing browning of this country, against empower, you know, this wave of empowered women and people of color. And there is this still white men feeling endangered and last death row's mindset. And yet you have people like Nikki Haley also garnering a lot of attention. And certainly there are many people who find her appealing. So I was wondering, how do you see her candidacy playing out? And how would you describe an, a, a sort of her appeal in this campaign cycle and what you're hearing and seeing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an important point. It's not as if. Uh, we should talk about the kind of changing demographics as meaning that Republicans have become a party that's only white people and just white candidates, I think, you know, actually look back to the last midterms. Republicans, particularly in the House, put up a more diverse slate of candidates than they have in a while. They put up, they mm-hmm. they have very intentionally right. tried to reach out to specifically Latino candidates in kind of uh, Texas and Florida. You know, I think it's almost a certainty that Donald Trump's vice presidential selection is either going to be a woman or a person of color or maybe both. And mm-hmm. so I think there is, you know, I don't want to say that, I don't want to act like Republicans do not kind of engage in the same level of, uh, you no, aren't trying to recognize the same demographic shifts and capitalize on them because they are and specifically they're trying to pit some of these groups against each other there was a very specific effort to kind of send I would I would describe as like anti-black ish messaging to Asian communities in house races in California right like they have done a very specific mm. understanding they go to black communities and they talk about how immigrants are taking your jobs and they try to appeal to like yeah. nativism language so I'm saying like this is not meaning that Republicans are not understanding Uh, the changes in the country and try to capitalize on them. So I think that's an important point. Uh, To the question about Nikki Haley, you know, I think I heard you all talking about this kind of before I got on, but like Nikki Haley is trying to do a pretty careful dance in this Mm -hmm. primary because not only does she represent, uh, you know, she's trying to pitch herself as a person who represents a new generation of the Republican Party. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. she she, she is a creature of a kind of pre-Trump Republican Party. And so while right. she's making a generational argument or making a kind of move on from these older figures argument the the knock on her that you hear from a lot of kind of republicans is that if you take away the identity politics, you frankly have your the evolution of the George Bush 2012 stuff that they don't really love, right? right. And so I think that is her real challenge and I would say that this kind of last couple of weeks of stumbles on the civil war question and others kind of makes that really clear because this is for a candidate that you know talks as much about straight talk and and being able to you know keep it honest that sounds like the person who is trying to calibrate the right answer which exactly is Mm -hmm. i think the reputation that for a lot of uh republican voters they don't really like you know what donald trump never lacks is authenticity right what donald Mm -hmm. trump never lacks is honesty (laughs) you know i mean like like honesty in terms of clarity in what he's in saying, not meaning he's telling the brain. truth. Right. Like, yeah. yes. <laughs> I'm right. saying like clarity of his thought. We know what he's thinking, right? right? Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, Nick, when Nikki Haley is asked, would she run against Donald Trump while she's in office? And she says, no, never. And then we're mm-hmm. here at this point. I think right. for a lot of Republican base voters, that just confirms their fears about Nikki Haley as being someone you can't really trust and i would say like it splits along ideological lines right if you are a moderate or a kind of uh, anti-trump conservative as there are more of in new hampshire i expect her to do well there there is a reason chris christie has 15% there's a reason she's at 30% new, ha- new hampshire is a place that honestly works for that type of messaging mm-hmm. but when you look at the path ahead right or or let's do it both ways one there's no guarantee that Nikki Haley finishes above Ron DeSantis in Iowa. That's something I'm really looking for in mm-hmm. terms of the Iowa results. It's because it's going to become a lot mm-hmm. harder for her to pitch herself as the Trump alternative in New Hampshire if she's behind DeSantis in Iowa, right? So that's Good. step one for her, is she has to be above DeSantis in Iowa. Two, mm-hmm. you have to capitalize that on in New Hampshire. But the problem is, I think even more core, is that when you look at South Carolina. Donald Trump has a 50 point lead, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah. in the state where she in was governor. St- in her own state, right. Yeah. right? And when we went to the uh, Silver <laughs> Elephant dinner, which is their big fundraising event for for South Carolina Republicans, there was no sign of Nikki Haley. There's no sign of Tim mm. Scott. This was all. They had signs yelling "Trump Country." You know, there was Mark Sanford, wow. the former governor, who obviously uh, kind of left in scandal. We were talking to him there. He was saying that you know this is a this is a state that's been completely remade in Donald Trump's image. And so even when you get past New Hampshire, when you think about the SEC primary, the same place that kind of made Joe Biden, when we think about older black voters and the kind of core of delegates in the map, that is all Donald Trump. (laughs) And so like the path for her ahead is really, really murky. So I'm someone who's like kind of thinks that the whole Nikki Haley phenomenon, uh, if we can call it that, is really just an indictment of how bad ron desantis has been in my opinion Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. this was there was only one person in this race who could challenge donald trump and the second he was bad there was Mm -hmm. no plan b and i do not think that nikki haley and i don't think nikki haley is compatible with this version of the republican party so Mm -hmm. i frankly think that like she's gobbling up a lot of voters who thought they would be voting for ron desantis but that's not enough Mm. voters to make you the Republican nominee. And so there's a reason that the Trump campaign still to this day focuses all of their statements on Ron DeSantis. (laughs) They want to kick him until he is all the way out because that is the Mm -hmm. only person who they believe even had a ceiling or a possibility of being able Mm -hmm. to overtake them. They are not worried about a one-on-one matchup with Nikki Haley. They would take that every day of the week.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think yeah, the Sanders have tried to appeal to that same feral piece. So I know you need to go, and just want to really quickly ask you, so we can help to uh, understand the stakes, right, of this election yep. in terms of what the consequences would be, in terms of if, if Trump were to actually win, in a lot, not even a lot of ways. Fundamentally, the twenty sixteen was an accidental presidency. Trump, did, I believe, Trump did himself did not even expect to win. Nobody yes, thought it was he was going to win. And so they weren't prepared or how do they use the levers of power to advance this cause of making America white again. But you guys have been reporting, you've been hearing that they've been actually far more intentional this time around in terms of getting ready around what they would do. So what have you hearing about that? And what are you guys going to be reporting about that in terms of a second term agenda and how they're getting ready to, to utilize that levers of power?
2: Yeah, this is really what makes all the horse race stuff matter is that the Trump campaign this time around is not the same version of as 2016 or even 2020. They have put in the last years of effort to find legal and political theories that can basically justify a a presidency that's completely independent of Congress. They have looked for ways to weaponize the military. They have an increased focus on deportation. You know, a lot of their last immigration policy was about keeping people from coming in. This time around, they're much more focused on not only doing that, but actually, you know, deporting people out of the country. They are much more focused on weaponizing the Justice Department, and they've been working with these conservative legal scholars who believe in the unitary unitary presidential theory, which is basically the idea that the president could do whatever he wants. And that is what Donald Trump is working toward, (laughs) is a presidency where he will feel unencumbered by Congress and unencumbered by the courts. And that will not this time be kind of an accidental thing. It is a thing that they are planning for. And so he has surrounded himself with people who believe in this. They've worked with kind of conservative, kind of heritage, like the fringe of conservative legal communities to back them on this. And that is the promise of this kind of next presidency. And so when he says, I will be your retribution, you should not take that as rhetoric. That is the policy promise of Trump this time around. And I think that's really, really important is that there was a, there, you know, for all the craziness of 2016 through 2020, there was like two years where he was like trying to be a president. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he was like trying to, he's trying to pass laws. He's like, you know, you know, he has the, the so-called moderating forces in D.C. I think you saw the increased radicalization as it got to kind of the end, obviously, with election denial, January 6th and the like. I think that's right. the starting point for this next yeah. president. And, yeah. um, and so that's really important, for, I think, for people to understand. And on the opposite side, this is what the Biden campaign thinks will become more clear as the year goes on. And they mm-hmm. think this will make it easier for them to communicate to their own voters the stakes are higher this time. I mm. think it's going to be interesting yeah. to yeah. see if well, that, that argument lands with the Democratic base in the same way. It did in 2020. Mm-hmm. But I I don't think it's a false argument. I think the yeah. Biden campaign is correct well, that not, this version of Donald Trump is radicalized. It,
0: the loss to history is that Hitler was elected and that the Germans actually elected Hitler after having had him in prison. And so this notion around how the country or sections of the country respond to these really more authoritarian fascist notions has some precedent. So we should not be.
2: Yeah, naive I, I, I think about that the. The undergirding belief that democracy is something that's a universally agreed thing that Americans want to protect, I think is going to be tested, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. there's certainly a mid... I think the midterms gave a lot of good evidence to the fact that you can persuade a slice of the country to really prioritize this over other issues, but I think a presidential election mm-hmm. is kind of a different boat. And I think particularly a presidential election mm-hmm. where the stakes will not only be Donald Trump in policy, but let's remember... Staying for him to stay out of jail, he probably has to win the election, and that's true. That might be really clear come November too, and so right. I I keep warning people that the stakes will be policy, the stakes will be kind of the things that we understand interaction between the two candidates, but this will also kind of be a free Trump election colloquially because mm. I do he you know all the evidence points to him being convicted in federal court. And possibly being awaiting sentencing by the time he's still on the ballot. And so I think that we don't wow. know we don't know how that energy falls. And we also don't know mm-hmm. how this mass apathy falls, too. We have 10-15% mm-hmm. of voters right now in polling saying they're interested in third party candidates or they don't or they would sit out the election. I don't think that necessarily right. mm-hmm. means that helps Donald Trump win. I just think we just don't know where that falls. And so I would say like right. if it was right. a if it was just Biden versus Trump, there would be a lot of questions just about their ability to appeal to these, to I think their core constituencies. But I think there's two mm-hmm. huge, like, unknown factors. One being how his legal predicament will play politically come November. Mm. And I also mm-hmm. think the mass distaste for both candidates among the electorate, we don't know where that yep. energy goes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that, I think, frames up what is going to be a crazy 2024. <laughs>
2: Great stuff for me to think about
1: when I can't go to bed at night. Thanks so much. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah
0: so no, thank you, you thank you all. Thank you all.
2: I appreciate it. I appreciate your work. So thank you.
0: Well, that was both insightful and sobering in terms of what we're going to be facing this year. But I'm really glad he was able But he's so clear in terms of really being able to break down. He really is. So, and yeah.
1: uh, yes. Yeah. Gave me a whole lot to think about and re- very, but just a really clear perspective, and I think, um, yeah, just boiled it down to, yeah. So what this, we yeah, have for all of the ahead,
0: people's, um, you know, oh, we don't like this about Biden, et cetera, et cetera. It really is. Do you like? Do mm. you like democracy? <laughs> this is what mm. is going to be. We're going to be facing.
1: Do you like fascism?
0: Exactly. That's quite literally what mm-hmm. we're looking at here. So mm-hmm. all right well we have we have uh, framed up the year for all of our Happy listeners. New year. <laughs> yes. So buckle up settle in we're in for a major struggle. Do I continue not even to believe. I think all of the uh, electoral evidence has affirmed additional we've put in our book you know about the continued diversification of the country's composition that the Sec- section of the country that wants us to be a multiracial democracy is the majority of people and mm-hmm. so the challenge is to make sure that we continue to vote and turn out in large numbers and the, the way we know that we're a majority is the you know the intensity of the opposition to stopping us from voting so that in many ways frames the whole, what we're looking at in 2024 and so that is all the time we have for today the 2024 year and, and election season is underway and in full force thank you for listening to democracy in color with steve phillips please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts sharing with your friends tweeting at democracy color and at steve p tweets and finding us at democracy in color on facebook or instagram you can also keep up with all things demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracy if you listen to our podcast on itunes please leave us a rating and a comment It helps others find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for a quality check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, happy new year and keep the faith.